Hi there. Welcome to the end of the world. My name is Michael Foles, and this is episode number 46 of my podcast, Dial It Back or Die. Now, as I've been saying throughout this science section, the goal here is to figure out what science says about what the true parameters of human nature are. After all, by now it should be clear that, just as modern science has shown us what proper human dietary requirements are, science has also, if we're looking for it, shown us what proper human behavioral needs are. Because if we're ever going to figure out how to get out of the mess of the present-day world, we not only are going to have to figure out how to eat to be healthy and happy, we're also going to have to figure out how to behave to be healthy and happy. For instance, with my example of Rat Park in the last episode, I pointed out how, if our human needs to be part and parcel of a social group, with all of the compromises on individualism which that entails, if those needs are not met, then we end up like those individual rats in their cages, endlessly seeking some pathetic dopamine rush. And with my description of the marshmallow test, I showed how science has now conclusively proven that those people who learn to make their cerebral cortex dominant are those who go on to have the healthier, happier lives. And there is an important corollary to all of these natural parameters that I am bringing up. After all, to use the diet analogy, once science has determined that whole grains are better for us than refined grains, it's pretty obvious that if we want to be healthier, we should eat whole grains. The answer is neither difficult nor complicated. And likewise, once we know what our natural human behavioral parameters are, it should be relatively easy and straightforward to design a society which, without having to be overly restrictive or dictatorial, can nudge us all towards a healthy and happy individual and social environment. Ah, but were it so easy? Because, again, as this entire podcast has been about, we are stuck here in this postmodern world, having all grown up absolutely believing in some utterly wrong 18th century beliefs about human behavior and the human condition. For instance, that we are simply cleverer animals who are nothing special in the greater scheme of things, which is completely wrong. That we are first and foremost individuals who should be subject to the absolute minimum of social control. Again, completely wrong. That we are rational decision makers who can therefore be trusted to choose the right products or policies or politicians. Once again, completely wrong. And at this point in the presentation, we're finally going to get to what I consider to be the strangest, weirdest, and most implausible wrong idea of all. And it's also the one that science has most easily and most thoroughly disproved. But, like one of those bizarre religious beliefs that believers keep believing in precisely because it is so absurd, 
It's the one idea that this postmodern world seems to hold on to more tightly than any of the others. The issue that I'm talking about is the reality of naturally evolved, differing psychological profiles of men and of women, and of the proper and ideal relationship of the sexes, and how the postmodern world is in such willful denial of same. And I fully understand that I am going to be treading where few wish to tread these days. And I realize that many of you, especially those of the younger generations, might find what I will be saying hard to accept. Kind of like telling a Christian in the 14th century that Jesus wasn't the Son of God. After all, here in the midst of all the chaos of these postmodern times, isn't one of the major things that we keep telling ourselves the certainty that at least we've finally gotten the equality of the sexes thing figured out. Well, this particular wrong idea is going to take several episodes to fully unpack, but I hope that you'll stay with me for it, because, first of all, without getting to the real answer, we're going to have to be stuck here with the endless meaninglessness of postmodern life. But here's, to me at least, the really interesting aspect. Because if we can get the female part and the male part of the equation right, then we've gone a long way towards figuring out the entire problem that's in front of us. Although, as I just said, this is going to take several episodes. And one more time, let me remind you that what I am going to be saying is in no way a function of me being quote-unquote conservative. It has nothing to do with whether or not I hold traditional social beliefs or traditional religious beliefs. In fact, much of what I will be saying directly contradicts much of what I personally believed earlier in my life. Because I am simply going where the science leads. So let's get started. Now, one of the reasons that I say that the whole issue of gender equality is so strange and weird is that throughout all of human history, there has never been a time or culture when it was not just taken for granted that there was a huge differentiation between the human male and the human female. And when I say human history, I am not just going back to those classical civilizations that I keep talking about. No, I am actually going back to the Paleolithic. You see, way back in the real mists of time, men really did hunt and women really did gather. In fact, current thinking is that this basic divvying up of labor is plausibly what enabled Homo sapiens to outcompete the Neanderthals when the two species first met up in Europe around 50,000 years ago. For the Neanderthals did seem to travel and hunt together, men, women, and children. But Homo sapiens, namely us, seem to have settled in small pre-villages where the women could establish a stable environment in which to impart to their children all of the culture which Homo sapiens were rapidly developing. 
yet another one of those killer apps. And I'll be delving into many more of the evolutionary reasons behind our massive sexual differentiation in the next episode. But here in the present, this is what we've learned from all of those anthropologists who have traveled into every nook and corner of the world. You know, those folks who have cataloged all of our strange human behaviors, from the worship of aircraft landing strips to the practice of cannibalism. What we have learned is this. There has always been man's world and woman's world. In every society which I am aware of, there has always been the understanding that men and women have naturally occurring different attitudes, different temperaments, different priorities, and different skills and abilities. Even more to the point, in virtually every culture ever studied, man's world consisted of attitudes and behaviors which we stereotypically associate with men today. Woman's world encompassed the various aspects of domesticity which we stereotypically associate with women. As an example, in one study of over a hundred different societies, in only one was boat building seen as women's work. And here's what we know from the historical record, from the time when civilizations started getting their act together, and when philosophers and the like were first trying to figure out what this all meant, that there had always been the conclusion that the nature of man and the nature of woman were two qualitatively different essences. Now it is true that the three major streams which produced Western civilization, Greece, Rome, and Judaism, all held that women were intrinsically inferior to men. But this inferiority had mostly to do with issues of strength, courage, and who was to rule the roost. Even so, Plato thought that women should be educated. Aristotle thought them to be more compassionate and of having a better memory. And all of these cultures held the social norms that men should cherish their wives, to always be temperate and faithful to them, and to help them with the child-rearing. In other words, in their conception, as men, man's world, with its battles, its politics, and its mathematics, was clearly superior to women's world with, to their eyes, its emphasis on children and gossip. But the social order still demanded that woman's world and the women in it needed to be treated with love and, most importantly, respect. And even more most importantly, man's world and woman's world each had their own separate sets of responsibilities, their own particular virtues, and a distinct, separate but equal, sense of dignity. And in the religious realm, outside of the admittedly patriarchal Hebrew Jehovah, the pagan understanding was that there had to be a natural balance between the male gods and the female gods. Further, most of what we would today call the higher attributes of the human condition, music, art, beauty, love, were assigned to goddesses, not gods. 
the ancient philosophical conception of the human female's place in the grand scheme of things seems to have been much more sophisticated in both India and China. Hinduism's conception of Shiva and his consort Shakti, the Tao's conception of yin and yang, they each assumed that even though the masculine principle and the feminine principle were necessarily different, even mutually exclusive, they were also, by definition, necessarily equal. And I've already pointed out that back here in the West, the rise of Christianity can be seen as a corrective to that Judaic emphasis on the masculine. After all, the aspect about this new religion which most disturbed the Romans was that by preaching compassion, modesty, turning the other cheek, etc., Christianity was making men effeminate. And then in the Middle Ages, the widespread veneration of the Virgin Mary among the masses was nothing more nor less than the affirmation of the feminine principle as being, though different, equal to that of the masculine. As noted, though, one of the unintended consequences of the Reformation in the 16th century was to downgrade and then eliminate Mary and the feminine principle from Protestantism. And then there's the crucial point that I've been making ever since the start of this podcast, namely that virtually every one of the founding fathers of the Age of Enlightenment, Thomas Hobbes, John Locke, David Hume, Adam Smith, and Jeremy Bentham, not only never had wives or families, in most instances, they never had any relationship of any kind with any woman, even mothers and sisters, their entire lives. Nor, of course, did any of them have even a vague knowledge of Eastern thought. So that when they were doing their cogitating and their writing and their arguing, when they were talking about the rights of man, that's all that those rights referred to, men. They didn't even have as sophisticated an understanding of man's world and woman's world as had the Greeks or Romans. But here's the significant and perhaps counterintuitive point about the Age of Enlightenment. Theoretically, woman's world might have become irrelevant or unworthy of respect, but it still existed. In the 18th century, what with its invention of sex as some sort of irresponsible fantasy realm for the elite, courtesans and prostitutes might well have become history's first class of celebrities. But in the real world of respectable women, real ladies would never ever be expected to think or behave like that. Most importantly, in the real world, woman's world still demanded total respect. In the real world, woman's world still gave women a distinctive and distinct sense of dignity. And this understanding of the independence of woman's world was true even among the most radical of liberals of that era. Even Mary Wollstonecraft, who feminists of today regard as the first true feminist, thought that woman's nature was qualitatively different from that of man's. Further, as you'll recall from my short history of the 19th century, 
any sort of what you would today call feminist thought came from a very small minority of women. But even these people, such as Susan B. Anthony, argued from the position that women's voices had to be heard precisely because they were so qualitatively different from that of men. Up until at least the year 1900, virtually no one anywhere in the world thought that gender differentiation was even vaguely just a function of culture or tradition. Well, there was one person, and that person was Mr. John Stuart Mill. Now, even if you've been following me through all of these episodes, I can certainly sympathize with you if you still haven't bought into my contention that all of this that surrounds us, the entire panoply of the postmodern world, is all a result of the bizarre utilitarian theories of one highly disturbed and highly disturbing little man from 1820 who no one has ever even heard of named Jeremy Bentham. After all, as I keep admitting, it all sounds, on the face of it, as way too ridiculous and over the top although I am still hoping that perhaps my iteration of the idea this one more time might convince you. Because consider, even the Nazis, for all their perverse rewriting of the basics of human nature, never went so far as to say that woman's world didn't exist. And while it is true that original Marxist belief was radically anti-marriage, etc., the plain historical fact is that once the Bolsheviks started governing, for the next 70 years, they slapped upon the Soviet Union a completely bourgeois moral code. Nor, as I've already pointed out, can one find any examples of common humanity's experience, let alone any scientific evidence, which ever suggested that, absent culture and tradition, men and women would share the same unitary, or what we might call monopolar outlook, the same set of desires and motivations, and the same aptitudes and attitudes. No, the only vision which saw this, the only world where this happened, was the vision and the world of utilitarianism, which again, for the umpteenth time, became the vision and the world of liberal democracy. For here, in this world, as I keep pointing out, we were each exactly equivalent consumption units who only related to other consumption units to the extent that we could profit from them in mutually agreed-upon pursuits of pleasure. In this vision and in this world, by definition, friends and family did not exist. Nor was there any theoretical place for innate differences in sex and gender. Okay, I probably still haven't convinced you. So let's get back to the pure science of it all. Because towards the end of the 20th century, once science started looking at this most basic and most intense of the nature-nurture questions, namely, whether the whole male-female thing was a function of culture and tradition, or whether it was a function of innate differences, it didn't take long for science to come up with the answer. 
And science did this through the most inarguable and most scientific of methods. Through studies of babies starting when they were only a few days old, long before any cultural influences could have any effect. Through high-tech MRI scans of both male and female brains and through an understanding of how essential sexual and other hormones work to actually rewire the brains of both males and females. And what they found so overwhelmingly supported the nature side of the argument that as far back as 1989, 30 years ago, it could be confidently stated that there was virtually no brain scientist in existence who didn't agree that there were basic, innate, fundamental differences in the way that men and women both thought and behaved. So for the rest of this episode, I'm going to be laying out some of those findings. For instance, within a few hours of birth, girl babies are much more interested in people and faces than our boys. The girl babies are much more sensitive to touch and to sound. They are much more easily irritated than boys by noise and discomfort, but are more easily soothed by words and singing. By a few months of age, the differences become more profound. Girls are much more sociable and social and focus their gurgles on people, whereas boys will babble away at anything. At four months old, most girls can distinguish between photographs of people they know and strangers. A one-week-old baby girl can pick out another baby's cry from background noise. In both instances, baby boys are pretty much oblivious. In short, baby girls are interested in people. Baby boys are interested in things. And this basic people-thing dichotomy goes on throughout childhood and throughout life. In general, young girls learn to talk sooner and to be better at it than boys. They are far more cooperative, far more interested in the social aspects of life. They are also far more reticent than boys and far less likely to cause trouble or to deviate from social norms. On the other hand, boys in general tend to be much more active and harder to control and at self-control, but much better at what is called visual and spatial intelligence. In other words, girls read people better. Boys read maps better. But wait a minute, you might gasp. All of this sounds like the worst sort of ignorant stereotyping. Aren't all of these observations really the result of um, social conditioning? Don't mothers unconsciously prompt their girls to act like girls, their boys to act like boys? Even if I grant that there are some small differences at birth, how can you be so sure that the rest of life isn't the result of cultural forces? And anyway, you might say, I personally happen to know a woman who reads maps much, much better than her spaced-out husband can. Well, first of all, we have to remember that qualifier in general. After all, we all know that some women are taller than some men. But all the same, no one would argue with the statement, 
that in general, men are taller than women. In similar fashion, when we are talking about behavioral differences between men and women, we are talking about large clumps of men and women. So obviously, individual cases will vary. But that doesn't mean that at the same time, there can't be huge average differences between the two groups. In general, for most traits, it turns out that there is about a 30% overlap, which means that some women will have slightly more masculine characteristics, and vice versa. Although there are some differences which aren't even close. For instance, the female who is least sensitive to touch is still more sensitive than the most sensitive male. The male with the least amount of testosterone has still way more testosterone than the female with the most. Beyond that, though, let me turn your objection around. Because how can you be so sure that the differences between male and female do indeed come down to social conditioning? How do you know that your belief in social conditioning isn't just some lame ideological belief? After all, what rigorous scientific studies can you quote? Doesn't it make just as logical sense that the reason that society has gender roles is precisely because those differences are innate? And doesn't the fact that just about every society that has ever existed has had pretty much the same gender roles lend a lot of support to this conclusion? Finally, if you still want to argue, remember Occam's razor. Absent those rigorous scientific studies that you can't come up with, the simplest plausible theory is always the best. But the main reason why science is so certain that these differences between the sexes are not a result of social conditioning is this. There is absolutely no doubt as to the neurological and chemical pathways in the development of the brain which have caused these differences to exist. Let me explain. When an egg is fertilized in the womb, for the first six to eight weeks of our existence, we are all female. But at that point, those of us with a Y chromosome get a jolt of testosterone, which shoots through our tiny little brains. This is a signal which starts the development of male genitals, etc. But it also actually physically rewires the circuitry of those tiny brains, so that from then on, male brains will actually be structurally different from female ones. Again, it is a fascinating fact that the original wiring diagram of the brain, the human default position, is female. Anyway, once the brain is rewired, a male hypothalamus ends up becoming different from a female hypothalamus. A female's verbal ability will end up being dealt with in one section of her left brain lobe, whereas a male's verbal ability will take place in two different areas of his left brain lobe. And then there's the whole left brain, right brain thing, which you might well already be at least a little familiar with. You know, the fact that the brain has two hemispheres, that the left side is female 
and deals with verbal ability, and that the right side is male and deals with the visual and spatial, which translates into mathematical ability, that the two are connected by a bundle of nerves called the corpus callosum, and that if this is cut, then strange things happen. For instance, if you put an apple in such a person's one hand, they can tell you that it's an apple, but they can't explain what apple means. If you put it in their other hand, they can tell you all of its qualities, such as roundness, etc., but they can't name it. Well, it turns out that the left-right female-male dichotomy isn't quite so simple. In reality, males do tend to compartmentalize their thoughts and feelings into discrete areas of their brains. Female brains, however, tend to use both hemispheres, as it were, in sync. As an example, males are usually much faster at solving complex geometrical problems. Females can solve them also. It just takes them longer, because they do it by using several different parts of their brain. And as a result of this greater non-compartmentalization on the part of the female, the female corpus callosum, which connects the two hemispheres, is much thicker than that of the male. And remember that this is all a result of that testosterone jolt in the womb just about 10 weeks or so into gestation. Anyway, after this initial burst, the testosterone goes away, which is why, beyond the basic girl-boy-people-thing dichotomy, children are relatively homogenous. I say relatively because, of course, girls, being more obedient and verbally able, tend to be much better students in the elementary years, whereas boys tend to have trouble knuckling down and sitting still and are way overrepresented in remedial reading classes and in diagnosis of ADD. Boys, being male mammals, still have somewhat of a need for hierarchy and dominance, so their games tend to be competitive, with complex rules, and with clear winners and losers, not to mention that winning and losing is usually very important to them. Girls, on the other hand, tend to play games which are collaborative and cooperative, and which involve social give-and-take. Further, in every culture ever studied, girls prefer to play with other girls. Boys prefer to play with boys. And it's not even close. Still, the sexual differentiation in the womb is nothing like what happens at puberty. Because at that point, boys become flush with a giant dosage of testosterone. In fact, young men end up with as much as 20 times more testosterone in them as young women. Now, female ovaries do produce a tiny amount. This accounts for the relatively small amount of drive and or lust which women do exhibit. Anyway, this rush of testosterone results not only in the well-known teenage boy phenomena of over-the-top horniness and dangerous risk-taking, but also in a more focused mind and in a more assertive personality. After all, the male brain has been pre-wired for all of this way back in the womb. At the same time, actually a year or two earlier, 
girls go through even bigger changes, with their bodies morphing into the adult female shape which is necessary for procreation. Just as important, because of their periods, they are now hopped up with both estrogen and progesterone. And the fluctuations of these hormones tend to confuse the mind. What makes it worse is that for many of them, even some who were previously top students, a fixation with boys and a greater need for social acceptance makes it harder for them to concentrate on academic subjects, especially math. Although, to be fair, much of the disparity in academic outcomes can be traced to the vagaries of our educational system. Thus, a more hands-on approach might help young boys in elementary school. More collaborative problem-solving might help teenage girls trying to learn algebra. And there are certain disciplines, such as expressive writing and foreign languages, in which adult women continue to outperform men. Anyway, the really interesting thing here is that, for example, the surge of testosterone at puberty only turns a boy into a man if there had already been that basic testosterone rewiring of the brain back in the womb. Giving testosterone to a girl at puberty or estrogen to a boy at puberty will certainly have some effect. But once again, and just to drum it into your head, whether you are destined to be male or female is actually determined back when you were a tiny little fetus. And if you still want more proof of the innate differences between male brains and female brains, consider this. There is a rare condition called CAH, in which girls in the womb are massively dosed with a testosterone-like hormone. They grow up liking to play with trucks, wanting nothing to do with dolls, and having little interest in becoming mothers when they grow up. There's another rare condition called Turner's Syndrome, where girls are born without even the small amount of testosterone which normal females have. These girls turn out to be overly passive, and their only interests extend to dressing up and playing with dolls. Finally, boys whose mothers, for various therapeutic reasons, took large amounts of estrogen when they were pregnant, grow up to be, as you might guess, less assertive and less interested in athletics, etc. Nor is this basic male-female brain differentiation limited to humans. It also appears in most mammals. A female dog's hypothalamus is different from a male dog's. Just as men tend to have a better sense of direction than women, so too do male rats tend to solve mazes better than female rats. So, in short, what is going on here is both neurological and chemical. But it is most definitely not cultural. So you would think that if back in 1989 virtually every brain scientist in the world was on board with the concept of brain sex, and if the actual science involved was so obvious and simple to understand, by now popular culture would have dropped the colossal misconception that somehow social conditioning was responsible for the glaring differences in aptitude and outlook between men and women. Especially 
when best-selling books like Men Are From Mars showed that people in the real world clearly understand the reality, and especially since, in the real world that we live in, no comic has ever gotten a knowing laugh by saying, Say, did you ever notice that men and women are pretty much the same? Well, keep remembering that point I made about how ideology trumps common sense, and that, in fact, in the end, ideology seems to trump everything, including science. But for those people out there who still believe that gender differences are cultural, then I would at least hope that we can all recognize the inherent hypocrisy of someone getting all angry at climate change deniers who ignore science, while at the same time ignoring science themselves when it comes to this issue. And if you personally still need to be convinced some more, then let me lay out a whole new line of argument for you. And it's one that there's a good chance that you've never heard before. Although you will have to wait a bit, because that's what the next episode is about. Although, as for this one, it's all over now. Although, once again, as always, I would like to thank you so much for so far having listened.